Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello everyone, you are listening to Movie Oubliette, a movie review podcast reviewing forgotten films with me, Dan, drinking from a goon sack (laughs) at a music festival in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, sipping Earl Grey with my pinky out in Cambridge, (laughs) UK. So in this podcast, we will be mainly discussing fantastic cinema, so sci-fi, horror and fantasy because we always like a bit of guts, <laughs> lasers, and unicorns. <laughs> yeah, in that order. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you today, Conrad? I'm very well. I'm very excited and a little bit nervous. Mm, me too, me too. Because we have a special guest today. We do indeed. A special guest who uh, is involved in one of the films that we have uh, looked at on this podcast in the past. That makes it kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially given that on that particular occasion, I thought the film should be thrown back into the Uthliette <laughs> and forgotten forever. Oh, no. <laughs> so hold on to your hats. Car crash podcast coming up. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well. Um, I'm actually blazing through a whole bunch of horror films on Netflix at the moment. Um, what, what I tend to do on Netflix is I add, keep adding films to my watch list and, and never watching mm. them. And it's always such a shame when Netflix ends up taking them off Netflix before I can even get around to watching mm. them. So I'm trying trying to get through my list. Yeah, I've always thought that Netflix should have a countdown or something, that they should sort of say, all oh, these things that are in your watch list are going to disappear next week. That would be really useful, but they don't do that. Yeah, that would be actually really good. <laughs> I would just be scrambling to watch all these movies. <laughs> yeah. Hello? Is that scratching and hollering I hear coming from the oubliette? Ah, it's a bit early, isn't it? Hmm. Hello? I think you should go check it out, Conrad. Yeah, that's weird. Hello? I think there's somebody in here. (laughs) Wow. You won't believe this, Dan. Who was it? It's only writer-director and writer of Pandorum, which we covered in episode seven, Travis Malloy. (laughs) What? It is. Hello. Hello, guys. Thank you for uh, thank you for letting me out. It was a very strange place, and uh, I was a little disoriented. Thanks for having me. It's really great of you to come on, especially considering when we covered Pandorum, of course, quite famously, I said that it should be thrown back into the oubliette, and it came down to a coin toss because Dan was your defender. So it's slightly embarrassing for me this moment. Well, no, I, I completely enjoyed it. I, I, when I came across your guys' show, I just uh, I had uh, I had such a great time listening to you guys discuss that movie. So I was very honored. I was humbled, and uh, wonderful to be with you guys now. Well, that's very kind of you. Ooh. So I see you seem to have pulled up a film with you. For 
for us to discuss today. Uh, could you tell us which film it is? Yes, and actually, I have two of them. Mm. But, but I, I, the these are great films that I found way at the bottom of the pile. Not too many people uh, <laughs> realize it or know it, but it is um, uh, the Vanishing. Yeah, George, and I don't know how to pronounce his name. George Sluizer, Sluizer, something like that. Um, the original from 1988. Um, which was a Dutch film. And then the typical Hollywood story of doing a remake, which is the 1993 version uh, with Jeff Bridges and Kiefer Sutherland and Sandra Bullock. So we have these two films that are vastly different as far as it comes to production, but is the same movie made twice. Yeah. And the, the story of the film is essentially the same, except when we get to the ending. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that. <laughs> it's about a young couple, Jeff, played by Kiefer Sutherland, and Diane, played all too briefly by Sandra Bullock, who are on a cycling holiday, I think. Mm-hmm. And Diane goes missing without a trace at a gas station. And Jeff becomes completely obsessed with finding out what happened to her and finds it very difficult to move on with his life. Even three years later, he's struggling, despite the steadying influence of Rita, played by Nancy Travis, a spunky, down-to-earth waitress with a fork for an earring, (laughs) who tries to help him move on. But just as he's about to move on with his life, enter Barney, played by Jeff Bridges, who is the man responsible for Diane's disappearance. And uh, he offers Jeff the opportunity to find out exactly what happened to her if he uh, plays along and we start to get this uh, psychological cat and mouse game as uh, he uh, explains what happened and explained his reasons for what he did and why he did it and slowly spins a a web that uh, Jeff is unable to escape. So yes, it's a psychological thriller that sort of spills into horror territory towards its finale. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So we'll take a break and then we'll... Sit around and discuss it. Fantastic. <laughs> so we are back to discuss the films The Vanishing both the original 88 version and the 1993 version, both directed by the same director. Fellas, what were your thoughts? Well, you know, the one thing I just got to say, that this is is a fascinating examination because it is very rare to direct a film, period. Mm. But the ability to make a film twice is such a rarity. The only other uh, example I could see of this was Michael Mann with Heat. You know, he did L.A. Takedown, and then he approved upon it six years later. That was like the only one that came to mind. So I had to look it up. And there's probably less than a dozen well-known examples of this. Hitchcock did it. Cecil B. DeMille did it with Ten Commandments. The Grudge. So there's been a handful of films that have done this. But for me as a filmmaker, I find it extremely fascinating to see what and how a director would treat the same film being able to do it again with a bigger budget with more luxuries more resources so i find it uh, just a, a fascinating examination from that standpoint 
Yes. Mm, I mean, the other the other film I, I can think of, which I haven't actually, I haven't seen either of them, um, is Funny Games. Yes. Oh yeah, Michael Haneke. Yeah. Mm. I've seen both, and they are slightly different. I think in the American remake, there isn't quite so much breaking of the fourth wall. Oh, right. But otherwise, they are very similar and mm. just as anarchic. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, this one is very much a clear case of making a film in two almost different genres. So you have the cold European art house, low budget. A psychological drama, I think. And then you have the American remake, which very much skews more into um, the the 90s thriller vein. It sort of fits into this series of, of thrillers that um, I noticed sort of coming out around the time where they try to incorporate sort of the 80s slasher mold into a psychological drama and sort of meld the two. And it tended to be... Uh, an outside psychopath, an outside agent attacking the perfect white middle-class family. Uh, obviously, most famously, Glenn Close as the mistress, Bunny Boiler from Hell in Fatal Attraction, the roommate from Hell in Single White Female, the subletter from Hell in Pacific Heights, the cop from Hell in Unlawful Entry. Uh, you know, the, the list goes on, most famously ending with the the nanny from hell with the hand that rocks the cradle where she is literally impaled upon a white picket fence, which is the most <laughs> obvious symbol of white middle-class America that I can possibly think of. <sighs> but The Vanishing is interesting because although it fits into that mould, it's 1993, it's very much smack bang in the middle of that trend. Mm. It doesn't really do the same sort of things that those movies do. It paints more in shades of grey than I think those other movies do. Mm. I don't think the antagonist is as clearly, you know, a mustachio-twirling villain mm. as the other ones tended to be. Yeah. I, I found some similarities between um, some of the kind of more like serial killer movies like The Silence of the Lambs and mm. Manhunter that came out in the 80s as well. Mm -hmm. um, and also with, with kind of more modern uh, movies like One Hour Photo. And it kind of a lot more focus on the actual killer itself as well. Mm. Yeah, what I found really strange about this movie was the killer was actually quite likeable, mm. <laughs> especially yeah. in, in the original Dutch film. He, he was a very likeable character and very comical mm. and clumsy and... It almost felt like I was watching uh, <laughs> like a kooky comedy and in the American version, toned down a lot. I felt they adapted it more for the American audiences and made him a little bit less likable and a little bit more sinister mm. and very awkward at times as well. Some of the dialogue was very funny because it was so, mm. so strange. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I, it was interesting the choices that <clears throat> Jeff Bridges made in this performance. It's it's really an interesting, unique performance. Mm. But to try to take a different slant with that typical villain, it, I felt like he was he he was really kind of going out there. He was trying to do a sympathetic character that almost felt like he was handicapped. Like it wasn't a person that was completely self-aware that mm. there was there was something missing from him to and i think that was to try to get a unique sense of empathy for this character it was interesting hearing jeff bridges 
do that performance because I felt like, ooh, I hear a little bit of the dude from Big Lebowski. I hear a little <laughs> bit of Rooster Cogburn from True Grit. I hear a little bit of Helen Highwater, like this this kind of morphed, muffled, like lisp. This thing, this thing he was doing. So mm. I thought that was pretty bold for him to try that. It was definitely not your typical um, slick, evil. Villain, yeah, yeah. Did he put on an accent? It almost felt like it was was a kind of tribute to the original film, and he he almost sounded Dutch. Yes, yes. He's trying to sound like the director, and it's because um, the director said to him, "I am this character." Right. Wow. So, <laughs> Interesting. If your director says to you, "I am a sociopathic serial killer." <laughs> I guess you just work with that. Just run with it, yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, very complex character as well. I, I, It took me a while to really get into the movie because I couldn't... I'd never really seen a movie where the villain was not clinical and, and not precise and almost OCD in their approach to how they abduct someone or, or go through with a crime. Mm. So it was quite a strange character for me to really take in at first. But once, yeah, once I got into him, he was really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't, I, for me, he did kind of steal the movie. It was mm. the most interesting element of the story. That's for sure. So uh, I definitely give him kudos for uh, for taking that approach and doing that. I, 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 love, I love him as an actor, but I have to say, I know that his accent skills are not always the best. I think he's, I think I'm pretty sure he's regarded as one of the worst movie accents ever. And that was blown away where he did an Irish accent that came in and out every sentence. <laughs> Can't be as bad as Brad Pitt's ex, uh, Irish accent. In, um, the Devil's Own. Devil's Own, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's th- those are right up there with Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. <laughs> Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. no. I've always loved Jeff Bridges, and, and mm, me too. He's done some amazing performances, not just in Coen Brothers um, movies, but also things like Starman, which I guess is in the Oubliette as well, where he does a really good. Uh, performance as an alien in a in a human body. Yeah, that movie is so bizarre. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's one we should definitely look at. But I think here is this affable cardigan-wearing bumbling academic mm. who's plotting a murder to see whether he's capable of it. That's the really... I've, I found his whole justification for why he's doing it really quite fascinating that because he he rescues a girl from drowning... Yes. Um, although I question that. She seemed as though she was doing fine. But anyway, he <laughs> rescues he rescues a girl from a river and his daughter is is really impressed with him and thinks he's a hero. Um and but this whole situation puzzles him because I think he is a sociopath. Mm. And he says that he he saving the person's life may have made me a hero, but did it make me a good person? I had to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was as capable of evil as I was of heroism. Real evil. Yes. The opening 12 minutes of the film, the American version, is him, mm. which is very different from the original version, which started with the couple that end up falling prey to him. Yes. And it's got this lovely bubbly devil may care music from jerry goldsmith bubbling underneath it while he's sort of 
practicing luring a woman into his car and and even practicing the process of getting a handkerchief covered with chloroform mm. it's really quite a disturbing combination of this bumbling idiot yeah and then underneath it you're reminded that he's actually planning to do something really quite awful and when he does things as callous as practicing on his daughter not by chloroforming her, thank goodness, yes. but by pretending to lock the door and then pinching her nose and saying, got your nose, is really quite disturbing. Yeah. In a way that I don't think I'd seen before. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. There was so much contrast throughout the movie because his character was, for the most part, hilarious. Mm. And he kept kind of making mistakes and dropping the bottle and, and <laughs> you know, he, he kind of, he had this big plan um, how to lure a woman in, but they weren't, his plan wasn't working and woman just kept brushing him off. Um, there's that one scene where he's about to chloroform a girl, but he, he has to sneeze. So he, he covers his nose with the <laughs> handkerchief and he chloroforms himself and then he, and he just has to excuse himself and go to the bathroom. It's, it's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. 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 And then you've got Miss Carmichael as well. Oh, yes. The neighbour who oh. provides vital information as to you know, the fact that uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character has gone off with Jeff Bridges' character when Rita is, uh, Nancy Travis is looking for him but then starts talking about the fact that the little green leprechaun jumped right <laughs> off her Lucky Charms cereal box and started dancing <laughs> right. around. And you think, right. what the hell is this character and what tone is this movie going for? Yeah, yeah. Correct. I think she Correct. greets uh, Rita as well by saying, you're going to wake up Elvis. <laughs> so <it's>... <laughs> <laughs> but then it would cut to... Kiefer Sutherland's character being completely devastated that he's lost his girlfriend and, and obsessed with, with trying to find her. And it was a, a complete stark contrast. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was, it was really interesting, guys, because I think the setup and the, the first act setup of this movie is really extremely brilliant and powerful. Mm. When examining, when comparing to the original film, what I found, and I, I had to do this for my own sanity, is I looked at the length that they spent in these two times. The one big thing that they did is they reversed the, the order. They opened the American film with Jeff Bridges going through these strange steps preparing for this. Uh, in the original, it started with the young couple. And then we did a flashback, which was around a nonlinear move, which was interesting for the time because the films were just starting to explore that um, that element. But the one thing that I found that was interesting was the American version was very impatient with these things, and it didn't spend the time. It it did it in almost exactly half the amount of time. Right. I timed it from the couple in the car, going to the gas station, doing their things, establishing their, their relationship and their backstory to when she is gone. And then from there to how how Kiefer and the other guy react to this, trying to find her to the end of those two sections. One was 22 minutes in the original. The other one was 11 minutes and change. Right. So they, they literally cut those things in half. So... 
if I could do a quick comparison, the problem with the American version is it didn't allow these moments to breathe. It didn't allow us to sense the eeriness or sense the connection between that couple. They, to me, they kind of rushed through it in the American version. So, and I think that that had a big effect on me because I thought the first act of this story was so unique and so powerful. Mm. Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And, and also, because this is probably the earliest, one of the earliest films I've seen Sandra Bullock in. And so for her to, com- yeah. her character to completely disappear so early in the film was quite abrupt and yeah. startling for me. Absolutely. Yeah. But the thing is that it's a testament to her star power and, and uh, sort of a premonition of what was to come the year after with Speed when she mm. sort of won over everyone's hearts as, as Annie in that movie. That... Her brief appearance in this really does haunt the rest of the movie. And I think that is something that that the American version has going for it, that even though it does compress the relationship between Kiefer and, and, and Diane, as she's called in this version of the story, it's still, for me, it still works as much as it needs to work just because Sandra Bullock is such a potent and instantly adorable screen presence. Yes. I agree. But having said that, I think this is much more concerned than the original version of the movie with how little Kiefer Sutherland's search for her has anything to do with his love for her. In fact, he quite clearly states that he doesn't care about her at all anymore. It's purely knowing what happened to her that's driving him. And some of the things that he says are really quite shocking. Like he says that he pretends that he has a choice, that she can still be alive out there somewhere and happy and he never gets to know what happened to her. Or he gets to know what happens to her and she's dead and he picks the latter every time, Mm. which Mm. is not love in any meaningful sense. In fact, it's quite the opposite, one would say. Mm. Right. (laughs) Just on a very basic level, I thought he was pretty dickish to take his girlfriend to a a disaster zone for the holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then leave her stranded in a tunnel when she's just trying to look for a torch when they run out of petrol and, uh, sorry, gas, I should say. Mm. And then her gift to him is a lighter when he doesn't smoke. It seems like they're not really a very great couple, to be honest. That's true. Mm. It's it's not a love for the ages, I don't think. <laughs> no, no. I, I found the, the obsession uh, kind of theme of the film was was very similar to a lot of Hitchcock movies as well, Mm. like Vertigo. And there is a direct reference to Hitchcock, I think, in the remake, but that I'm pretty sure does not reside in the original, which is Rita, Nancy Travis, turning up at Jeff's um, secret motel HQ when he's been lying to her and secretly searching for Diane on his weekends, pretending that he's an army reserve. Mm -hmm. Right. And she turns up after she's figured it out wearing Diane's clothes and Ah, a wig and it is such a a strong reference to Vertigo that I I will be your your dead lover if you want Mm. yes that's right and it's quite a disturbing scene I think Mm. so I have to be completely honest I didn't watch the original completely so I I had a kind of a scrub through (laughs) and I did read up on on the differences with the ending so I know about that Um, but I found the remake a lot of the cinematography and framing was a lot more precise Mm -hmm. Um, some of the framing in the in the original is it's very clumsy especially I think this the scene where 
um, Jeff and the Barney character, um, well, the equivalent in the original, they meet up. It, it's a very clumsy scene and they kind of have a, a, a scuffle on top of a car. But in, in the remake, it's it's a lot more blocked out. And um, there's one scene with with Jeff and Rita and they're having this argument at in, the, in this parking lot. I think it's outside the service station. And I, I love it because he's, he's chosen to do these very kind of medium wide shots of them talking to each other. And it has this really great sense of distance between the two characters. And then they finally resolve it and then they kind of embrace it in the same shot. And it's, it's just really well choreographed um, cinematography. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it seemed like that era of filmmaking definitely went through a very... the technology was was improving very quickly with camera stabilization that that movies were, became very clean and very precise very well lit mm. there's pros and cons to that but for me it it almost got too clean during certain parts of the movie where it felt like it felt dated because it felt like I was watching a, a Hallmark movie you know it has that very mm. non-layered very clean very bright feel to it. it feels like a tv movie where yeah. i agree and then this is a great example of production level where we have a 20 million dollar budget and i believe like about a two million dollar budget with the original mm-hmm. and when you look at those there's such a difference with aesthetic i honestly i mean it's apples and oranges but to me the the grit the 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 sloppiness the the mistakes technologically that come with a smaller budget film like the original for me it gives it an interesting energy. It feels, when I watched the the new one, and this is my biggest gripe about it, is that the movie felt safe. Mm. I never felt this sense that I was going to see something that was going to disturb me for life. I felt protected like this safe zone around the movie because they're known actors. It's professionally done. The production level is at a certain level. So there was a safety net around the movie that I didn't like. And I prefer the feeling that I got from the original where this thing could take a turn and go horrifically wrong. Mm. And that kind of, that energy excited me. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, yeah, I would definitely agree with that, especially since the original was quite hard to describe genre-wise because it was so strange and, and much more comical. And even, even the character, the Barney equivalent character was was a lot more comical with his big chin beard and he looked very <laughs> he looks like the ultimate dutch man um, <laughs> right whereas in the, in the american version it was they they really tried to make barney much more sinister and and much more kind of villainous and and give him kind of character traits that were were a lot more. Oh yeah, he's a, he's the villain. He's he's the mm. killer. Whereas in in the original, it was quite hard to really describe him as the killer until he actually went through with the crime, and then oh, he kind of woke up and and realized oh shit, he's he's doing it. He's he's abducting her. He's mm. he's chloroforming her. So yeah, right. Yeah, and in in both movies, that moment is still genuinely shocking. 
Oh, I think. Yes. So shocking. <laughs> I mean, both actresses do an incredible job of it, but I mean, the sight of Sandra Bullock just wide eyed. I mean, she has big doe eyes to begin with, but the sight of her wide eyed and it's so feral and desperate, her attempt to get away from him. And it it really is very disturbing to watch. Yes. I mean, there are some things I would say in terms of where I think the film, the remake gains in terms of its sophistication. It draws parallels between moments that the original doesn't. The film could almost be called Commitments Made at a Service Station, right? Because, <laughs> because Jeff commits to never leaving Diane at the service station in daylight. He commits to Rita, the scene that you mentioned, Dan, mm-hmm. at dusk. And he commits to drinking the coffee and his eventual downfall. Yes, he does. <laughs> at nighttime in a thunderstorm. So it's, it's even the camera is even in the same position for, for the key moments of, of those three right. scenes. And this is something that does not happen in the original. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing that I thought that the film, the, the extra budget and the extra time and the resources, it felt like it gave him an opportunity maybe to explore doing things like that that perhaps he couldn't before Mm. Uh, one thing we should talk about and and massive spoilers here is the difference with the endings yes so so in the in the american version we have a very happy ending and and rita comes and saves the day and yes and uh discovers the jeff character whereas in the dutch version she doesn't save the day and the Jeff character gets buried alive. <laughs> and then it cuts to um, the Barney character with his family and he's, he's having a merry old time and, and, mm. and then credits. <laughs> Devastating ending. <laughs> yeah. It is, although it's given a sort of a ray of hope in the sense that in, in the original, the Jeff character, so Rex... He is sort of reunited with yes with his lost love because he sort of it's a replay of the shot where he eventually finds her at the end of the tunnel that he abandoned her in earlier on, and yes. so it's sort of like her at the the end of this this tunnel of light, which is um, yeah yeah the, the only way that they you could sort of put a cap on the movie I think in that version yeah the inner peace indeed um, yeah to to me this is the prime example like the perfect example of the Hollywood ending changing a movie, mm-hmm. making such a massive choice that I think changes the context of the whole film. Stanley Kubrick said it was the, the, the original was the scariest movie he ever watched. And I agreed with him. I, I saw the original back in the 90s, and it totally shook me to the core. I couldn't get the movie out of my head. It disturbed me. It fascinated me. It did all the things a great movie could do. So I have to say that that choice to make a different ending like that is an interesting one. I can understand decisions to make it more commercial, to not shock and disturb people as much as Hollywood is known to do. But I think it was an interesting choice to do that. And I I think it greatly affected the difference between the two movies. It it does. And I think it's the reason why so much scorn was poured on the remake at the time. I mean, um, Siskel and Ebert quite famously savaged it on their show, saying that why is it that European audiences 
can get the sophisticated, disturbing psychological thriller and the American audiences have to get this watered-down rubbish. (laughs) And a lot of people were quick to point out that the ruthlessly logical psychological underpinnings of Acts 1 and 2 of the original movie are completely undermined by an illogical Act 3. And we could talk Mm. about some of the ways that Act 3, if you think about it, does not make any sense in the remake. Right. But there is also a counter-argument for that that I read recently by Julie Kurgo, who actually looks at the film and gives it a feminist rereading and even suggests that it's possibly the progressive feminist aspect of the remake that unconsciously upset male reviewers, Mm. which I thought was quite an interesting take on it. And what she's focusing on, of course, is Rita, Mm. who does not really exist in the original version. There is a a new love interest for the main character, but she vanishes halfway through. I think she vanishes sort of at the uh, restaurant scene. Very early on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she bugs out at that point because she can tell that he hasn't moved on and he's a lost cause. Whereas Rita really vividly portrayed by Nancy Travis. I really like her in this role. She stands by her man and she is willing to fight for him, even though the decisions that he's making can make her question his dedication to her or even whether he is a lost cause or not. But she still fights for him. I mean, when she says, I don't know how not to fight Nobody in my family has ever fought for anything and they either wound up on Prozac and sleeping 14 hours a day or dead from liver disease at 35. That is not going to happen to me. She's really, I think, the audience's window into this story in the American version because I don't think Kiefer Sutherland's Jeff is particularly sympathetic, certainly his whole reason for going through this thing isn't because he he loved Diane. It's just because he's got this psychological curiosity. And Barney similarly is just following through this sociopathic experiment to see what will happen. These are very sort of negative portrayals of men that are just locked in these traps that they've constructed for themselves, as Barney puts it. And whereas Rita seems to be much more resourceful, much more adaptable, she turns out to be cleverer than these two, well, this academic and this guy going through this intellectual exercise. And she ends up outwitting both of them. Mm. So Julie Kurgo's suggestion is that it's perhaps this nascent proto-feminist figure and the fact that Rita is a uniquely American character, this working-class blue-collared waitress who won't take any nonsense, is not really a character that you would see in a European film. Mm. So the suggestion there is that actually this is a a really interesting Americanized development on the uh, original film. And I found that quite convincing. I was quite um, impressed with that reading of it. Mm. I I would actually really agree. Um, I liked both endings. I thought they were completely different in tone. And I felt that, yes, the American version was kind of Hollywood-ified, but it really ramped up the tension. And I thought that last act was actually quite riveting. And I was really <laughs> I was really on the edge of my seat and really rooting for Rita. And yeah, I agree that her character was really interesting because the guy doesn't save the day. You know, Jeff doesn't get himself out of his predicament. Rita gets him out. Putting the pieces together and, and solving the puzzle and... 
yeah, I really liked the kind of turn of events, and I I was it had a really great payoff, I guess.、Mm. And I know it was a very Hollywood happy ending, but <laughs> I was totally in it for the for the ride, and and I actually really enjoyed it.、Mm. Yeah, it's the popcorn version, isn't it? It's It's a, just a different type of movie making. Yes. Yeah. I think he did a really good job of doing that version of his movie. I don't think he actually destroyed his original in doing so. Personally, I'm tainted、um, by the original、mm. because the original had such a powerful effect on me. I was haunted by it. The moment it started to Skew and go away from the things that I liked about the original. I, I my animosity just built up towards it.、Right. Mm-hmm. So, if I had seen the 1993 version first and I didn't know about the Dutch version, and if I would have lived with that movie for a while, and then oh really, there's a there's an original. Maybe I'd feel differently about it. I don't know.、Mm, yeah. yeah, I think it does depend which version you saw first, because I saw the American version first. Ah, so interesting. So I, I think that probably does make all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, I think it does. Yeah. I I watched the American version first, and then、um, the Dutch version kind of scrubbed through it.、Uh, <laughs> Production wise, in terms of. Set design and and location, it's almost identical. Like that that scene in the the service station,、mm-hmm. is very very similar,、mm. and everything is laid out almost identically. It's it's amazing that he managed to kind of replicate what he had five years previously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of the things about the ending that don't work, it's kind of sad that Rita is so resourceful, but she brings an empty box with her. So I mean, you've heard about bringing a knife to a gunfight. Rita bought an empty box <laughs> with a <laughs> with a note in it saying, you know, no more guns, because she'd argued with Jeff about him having a gun in the house, and he's secretly gotten rid of it. And she didn't look inside the case to see whether the gun was still. Why did she bring the case to begin with? <laughs> yeah, you'd bring the gun. Yeah,、mm. and and then there's this moment where. She gets the better of Barney in her driveway after he's leapt out at her. Although I have no idea why he leaps out at her. Is he expecting her? Because earlier in the movie he went to abduct or kill her, but then bugged out because he overheard the fact that she was leaving. So she thought he thought well, obviously she's not a problem anymore, so I just won't bother. But he still seems to be expecting her so much so that he's even put chloroform on a piece of cloth and stuffed it inside the mouthpiece of his telephone, so that when she tries to use it, <laughs>、yes. she gets all woozy. And it's like, wh- when did he do this? Why did he do this? Right. So I mean, it it just doesn't make any sense if you start pulling at the finale. I mean, it's great that he pretends that the chloroform has an instant effect、mm. when we know it takes fifteen minutes because he said that to Jeff earlier. But why then does he leave her for five ten minutes to start digging Kiefer up、mm. before he attacks her whilst he's shouting, "I've got fifteen minutes to find her, Rita,"、mm. <laughs> uh, referring to his. His daughter, who Rita claims to have abducted, so the whole thing sort of falls apart really on close inspection. But it is satisfying. That's the thing. It's it's fun.、Mm. Now it's time for random trivia. 
And now it's time for our random trivia moment. This time we'll have a trivia moment from our guest. Travis, what have you got for us? What I found really interesting in the trivia about this movie was the origins of the story from the original. The original was based off an actual event of a tourist disappearing oh. from a bus trip. Oh. The guy who wrote the novel, there was a story in Europe where a woman just vanished at a, at a truck stop, at a gas station. And the police searched for her for days and, and he'd forgotten about the story. He remembered it and then he actually did research and realized that the woman had just gotten on the wrong bus <laughs> and was found and was fine and everything was good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he actually just took that that primal fear of someone disappearing in the middle of a nice, friendly, bright, sunny day, and then wrote the novel off of that. And he actually thanked the woman for inspiring the idea. Right. <laughs> I think that was, that's really fascinating. Mm, that is really yeah, fascinating. It is. And that's our random trivia moment. I just wanted to kind of clarify a thing that I was confused about during the film. So his daughter constantly makes remarks to her father, Barney, that he should have an affair. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really that's don't a, know. That, I think that's a leftover from the original. Okay. There's a unique, weird thing where his daughter suspects that he has... Are you having an affair? And then the surprise within that conversation is, I think you should, like you deserve it or that kind of. So I think that was kind of an echo left over from the original. And then it's, it's pretty odd in the new one, but uh, I believe that's where the origins came from. I got, you know, the one thing I got to say about that, the third act in the 93 version, and I've been in this experience before yes. in writing for studios and, and working on scripts. I've been in the same predicament where they want to change one thing. And when you change one thing, like the ending of this film, then all of a sudden this ball kind of unravels and now you're kind of improvising to make these things work. Mm. You know, the, the, the Rita's reasoning and why wouldn't he know, be ready for this or how is he ready for this and how she discovers where to go, which was creating the new character in the apartment building. So you find yourself doing a lot of mending. Like, uh, yeah, that okay, that works. That makes sense. But... But why does this happen? Well, okay, what about this? And so so it felt like a lot of patchwork to change that ending. Because to have Rita, I mean, right away, that decision to make Rita save him in the end all of a sudden changes so much about the movie in the way that Rita's introduced, how her character and Kiefer's character's relationship comes together. I mean, all of those elements then have to be different for it to be satisfying. Um, but I got that sense while watching it that somebody's doing patchwork here. Hmm. Yeah, a scene that I never understood the first time I saw this movie, but I think I understand now and actually think it may even be the director's subtle meta comment on the movie, is the scene with Barney, the school teacher, 
where he demonstrates to his students that the the greatest risk for a research chemist is that a contaminant is introduced to an experiment. And he shows this by dropping a fly into a Petri dish. And it has this sort of strange reaction on whatever is in the Petri dish. And it sort of spreads out from the fly. Mm -hmm. Because he says that this will render the entire experiment pointless. And you, what do you cut to straight after that? You cut to Rita oh. breaking into Kiefer Sutherland's computer and figuring out right. where he is and that he's lying to her. So I just looked at it and thought, Rita is the contaminant. She is the fly, literal fly in his ointment. And is the director sort of pointing out that actually once you do this to this movie, <laughs> you're actually going to destroy <laughs> the whole fabric of the thing? Is, is he actually sort of subtly commenting on that? It, wow. Because otherwise that scene is quite odd. <laughs> that's really nice. interesting. Uh, George's, yeah, George's secret message to us that uh, <laughs> it was headed for a train wreck. Um, <laughs> you know, the other interesting thing, I hope you guys saw this, but that they offered George another chance to make the movie a third time. Really? What? Yeah, with the original <laughs> ending. Oh. It's in the trivia on IMDb that an American TV network offered him the chance to do the film again a third time, but going back to the original ending. The project, for whatever reason, never came to be, and maybe it was because of George's age and, you know, and then him passing away, but... I found that really interesting. So in my mind, obviously, they got a lot of flack for changing that ending. Um, and then some studio executive said, well, maybe we messed up. But if we follow the original, it'll work. It'll be shocking. It'll be successful. It'll follow the same success as the Dutch film. Mm. So uh, an interesting thought. Yeah, I can't imagine remaking the same movie three times. Oh. That, that would be... <laughs> Because, <laughs> oh. I mean, it's a big commitment. I mean, you, oh. you think of a movie as just a couple of hours, but this is at least a year and possibly two or three years of your life, mm. really, in terms of pre- and post-production. Absolutely. So there's only so many of these things you're going to get the opportunity to do in your lifespan. You just imagine taking up three of those chances making the same movie. <laughs> I can't even imagine. That's why I'm so surprised, you know, they're doing it twice. But obviously there's money. It's a bigger platform doing a big American studio film with, with known stars. So how can you pass that up? Mm. But it's still, even with that... To do a film twice is, uh, is, is just so unique. Mm. One thing that I also love about this movie, about both, both movies, is, and this might be a generalization, but it seems that American films, mystery thriller films, are more focused on whodunit. Mm. It seems like we lean towards that, and this broke that. Mm. I'm sure there's films before Hitchcock had done it, et cetera, but to right out of the gate show us our villain. Mm. And it's no longer a mystery of who did it. It's now an examination of why. Yeah. Who is this character and why are they attempting to do this? And to me, I find that a thousand times more interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I, I feel like this film, it's, it's not really a, a case of who done it, but it's a case of what did he do to her? Right. So you were just constantly throughout the film, just what did he do? Right. And then the, the 
I think there's a line where Jeff says, oh, um, did you kill her as she did? And and Barney replies saying, oh, there's worse, worse things than death. Yeah. And then you're, you're then trying to figure out what's worse, worse than death. And then the reveal of, <laughs> right. of, Jeff, of Jeff being buried alive is just like very, very confronting and very shocking. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and and, and uh, that one sequence, which is so memorable in both films, with the camera inside the coffin, with him just slowly rotating within yeah. that horrible uh, space, was later turned into a whole movie in and of itself. Ah, oh, yes, um, with Ryan Reynolds. Yes, um, the movie buried in 2010 by yes. Rodrigo Cortez, which is a film I really enjoy actually, but it's it's haunted by the vanishing, I think. Yeah, I was uh, just on a sidebar real quick, guys. I, I'm claustrophobic. It's one of my, it's one of my things. And it was a, when writing Pandorum, that was one of the main things that drove me to write some of those sequences in the film. But so I was trying to tap into that. So this mm. movie hit me uh, 10 times harder with the idea of, what that what would happen if you were buried alive and what would those last moments be like so truly mm. terrifying huh. yeah. yeah well ben foster waking up in that stasis tube definitely has the same effect doesn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 coming to you live from the movie oubliette theater it's the prestigious mobley awards Okay, it's that time where we nominate our favourite or least favourite parts of the film in a number of completely spurious and useless categories. <laughs> As always, we kick off with our favourite quote, and I think I've probably exhausted many of my favourite quotes. It's it's probably, your obsession is my weapon, but what, what do other people think? Travis, what, what was your favourite line? Yeah, I'm right there with you. That was the same one. I, I, I don't need a gun. Your obsession is my weapon. Uh, it's just a fantastic line, and it, 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 just, it just tells the whole story right there with the movie. So I'm with you. Same line. I would say the same line as well. I mean, there's, there's one quite long line that um, Barney says kind of towards the beginning of the film to uh, his wife mm. so he says to her look i know you think restoring this cabin is a crazy idea but what if it's not what if i'm learning about myself as i go realizing that if i can do this i can do anything so i take a step i think is this crazy should i stop then i think not yet there's always time to turn back if i want to so i take another step and another and another and one day I realize that I've crossed the line and there's no turning back. Mm. So a, a huge amount of foreshadowing there. <laughs> yes, mm. he is not talking about restoring a cabin, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> he really and actually, Conrad, if I could do an honorable mention, there's one line, it's not a great line, but it was the one line that made me laugh out loud. And that was when uh, Rita said, she said that uh, she reacted to the gun being loaded. And he said, yeah, that's usually the part the psychopaths react to, respond to. <laughs> so I, I actually laughed out loud, which I, which I rarely do, uh, especially in a suspense movie. So I thought that was a great line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about most 90s 
aspect of the film. So um, many. <laughs> so many. My nomination for that would just be all the muted pastels because mm. that you go through the 80s where everything is fluorescent and, and hideous and then all of a sudden in the early 90s everyone shifts to wearing these muted bleached out colours. Um, uh, yes. And Diane yes. memorably is wearing this this ensemble that entirely consists of different shades of beige. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely have mine, and uh, and that is Kiefer Sutherland playing with a hacky sack in the parking lot oh, outside yes. the truck stop. <laughs> It, it couldn't. It couldn't be any more '90s unless he had a ponytail, one earring, and MC Hammer pants. I mean that, and wearing a flannel shirt or something. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah, my, my most '90s moment was was the '90s technology, especially the the old Apple Mac computer. Oh, this is yeah. back when Apple Macs weren't good at all they were very clunky <laughs> and you couldn't really do anything but i laughed out loud when with that scene because i had a very similar computer <laughs> growing up yeah there's the double cassette tape answering machine as well which is uh, uh, yes. a, a pivotal part of the plot at one point but wow does that date that movie <laughs> yeah very true so nominations for best hair and or costume uh, for me, it has to be Rita turning up at Jeff's secret motel HQ, dressed in Diane's ensemble of beige <laughs> with a hideous wig. It is the most hideous wig I've ever seen. Right. Yes. <laughs> I have to agree with you. That I mean, it's that you can't get any weirder and stronger uh, bizarre <laughs> choice than that. That is for sure. I'm with you, Conrad. My, my uh, nomination is, is a very... I think it's only one scene, but Kiefer Sutherland's character, Jeff, three years later after his, his girlfriend's gone missing and he's in the diner um, <laughs> and he's and he's sporting a, a, just a very typical <laughs> 80s mullet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, it reminded me so much of MacGyver's mullet. Uh, or like Kurt Russell, <laughs> it was it was so good. Didn't he also have like kind of the Rambo green army jacket as well? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yes, like, he yeah. Did. <laughs> Oof. I think that was meant to show his descent into madness, though. So maybe it's excusable <laughs> yes. on those all, grounds. Yes, all, all burnt yeah. out guys wear faded green army jackets, and the hair turns into a mullet. I, I think yeah. it's, a, it's a law with '90s films. It, yeah. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> yeah. How about our favorite scene? Do we have a favorite scene in this movie? You know, it'd have to be uh, Jeff Bridges as he's rehearsing his ambush. Mm. You know, when he's practicing with the car, he's practicing with the bottle. I, I, I loved his choices in his performance to try to do something with that character. And that's such an odd, strange way to introduce this villain and and show what he's planning or what he's attempting to do and the, his clumsiness, his awkwardness with it. Uh, I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah, Ooh. he's very good. And Dan? Uh, so <laughs> everyone's probably going to hate me for this, but I really quite like the climactic scene, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though it compl- it's a totally Hollywood, Americanized um, everyone lives happily ever after, 
um, and and Rita saves the day. But I, I found it very tense, and it almost it almost kind of um, fell back on a very horror trope, kind of mm. uh, the fact that <laughs> that Barney just appears everywhere um (laughs) which is is very common in you know slasher films and friday all the friday 13th movies um (laughs) just inexplicably able to just appear in all the right spots and being able to do the right things but i don't know i found a very (laughs) tense scene at the same time and and it's such a great payoff Mm. and i i was i was cheering when when she discovers um jeff and yeah, good bread scene. Yeah, mm. <laughs> it is satisfying. But he does. That was one of the criticisms that he does turn into a slasher movie villain. He starts yeah, teleporting he and 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 magically surviving <laughs> what should be lethal wounds. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and while we're in that territory, what do we think is the most cliched thriller or horror moment in this movie? And I think. For me, it's got to be the cabin in the woods on a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Lightning and thunder, yes. Indeed, but it has to be said, the lightning and thunder does occur in the original movie as well. So the original movie is not blameless in this regard. Right. uh, Yes, that would be my nomination for for Mm. Thriller Cliché. Yeah, I'm going to have to go. I I really agree with that choice, that's for sure. Um, but I, I I was okay with it because I just felt like this is where we're going anyway, so you might as well, you know. <laughs> Buckle up. Yeah, you might as well have the cobwebs and the, you know, I mean, it's, you know. But for me, it was when Kiefer was trying to explain to the police officer that his girl was missing. And we knew he was going to get a little too upset and the cop was going to tell him to back off which <laughs> tells us the cops are not going to believe you because you're you're out of your mind you you can't even control yourself so <laughs> when the cop said put your face back where it belongs <laughs> and Kiefer had to do his best but no one believes me kind of expression of, of angst. That was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I do love that scene though, because he does actually go from a typical close-up framing to uncomfortably close. So it's almost like it's a direction. It's a, can you put your face back where it was? Because this is not a flattering look for you. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, and I actually, I actually liked the scene, but it was so like page four thriller moment. <laughs> the cops don't believe him. We need that, so throw that in there. Mm, but yeah. Uh, yeah, and Dan, how about you? My most cliche thriller scene uh, was when Rita is trying to guess the password on his computer. (laughs) 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 Every thriller and action movie or espionage movie or anything in in this kind of respect, there's always trying to guess the password. But I found this one... like how how did she even (laughs) guess that because she she ended up having to use diane shaver's original name and then it was an anagram of that that that's right vanished which is (laughs) it's not even it's not even even grammatical that's uh, terrible (laughs) correct like how did she do that and she guesses it and and it's it's all it's all i don't know it's ridiculous i forgot about that (laughs) 
Wow. But yeah, yeah every thriller movie ever made. <laughs> so, uh, funniest scene, whether uh, intentional or not, um, I have to say I did laugh myself silly at uh, the magically delicious lady. It almost seems like, again, that the director is sort of pranking us with this one. It's like, we have to have this character to tell Rita where Jeff has gone. So let's make her the most ridiculous, insane character. Yeah, but also is, is able to recall license plate numbers completely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfectly. Yeah. yeah, she has a photographic memory for serial box characters and license plate numbers, which is great. <laughs> Travis, how about you? Did you find a scene funny in this movie, intentional or otherwise? You know what? It, well, it actually has to be Rita showing up in the wig. Oh, yeah. I, I, it was so. I we weren't there yet. I wasn't ready for that. I, I'm not going to believe it. So, if I would have been Kiefer, I would have started laughing like, "Oh, that's funny. Okay, oh, uh, you got me. You you you, you kind of look like my dead girlfriend. Uh, you know, I just it was just too bizarre. It was too out of left field. I was like. Yeah, it doesn't help that she looks ridiculous, Mm. but (laughs) (laughs) she does not look like Sandra Bullock. It's kind of like a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, yeah, Yeah. let's jokingly not do this well. Let's just throw this on your head. And yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dan, how about you? I mean, I, I did find the scene where Barney, like, chloroforms himself was hilarious but there's this one scene towards the start of the film where Barney is just in his backyard or something and then his neighbour Stan goes past in his boat and then Barney says to Stan were you at your place last night? I thought I heard screams like a child and then Stan is very bemused and and confused and he just replies I didn't hear a thing and then Barney just has this very awkwardly long <laughs> silence and he kind of looks around and then and then he turns back to Stan and he says, have a nice day. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> That's so odd. Yeah, he's, he's not exactly reducing his suspicion level amongst his neighbours, is he? <laughs> Could have smoothed over it a little bit yeah, more than that. Exactly. Which I think the in the original he does. Right, but right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and that's our Mooblies. Yes. So now it's time, sweaty palmed, for us to come up with a final verdict. Should the vanishing be buried alive and forgotten (laughs) as per the original version of the film? Or should Rita come and save the day and dig it up at the last minute and release it to make jokes about not liking coffee anymore? (laughs) Dan, Travis, what do you think? Okay. Uh, Yes, I strongly believe it 
should be buried as Rex was in the original, and it should be buried more than six feet deep. Because, uh, as I said, I'm coming from a very jaded perspective. I'm very tainted because the original so powerfully affected me. When I saw this, I was very upset. I was very bothered by it. I respect the things about it that are good, but this movie should never have existed. I would bury it very deep in that dark hole. <laughs> wow. And right. give it only the Zippo lighter to light a few times uh, in its end. So, yes. Wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> We're not on the fence there. Okay. <laughs> no. Dan, how about you? I actually really, I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, I found the, the kind of the start of it kind of hard to get into because it was, it was such an interesting and, and original take on the kind of thriller genre. But once you got into it and once the kind of plot started rolling along, I really, I was really invested and I really enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> so I would, I would vote to see it at free. <laughs> well, I feel quite strongly that this film did not deserve the critical tarring that it got at the time. I understand that coming so soon after the original and the original being so well thought of mm. that the Hollywood version of it would pale by comparison. But I actually think it's a really interesting piece of Hollywood genre movie making. And because it brings so many elements from the original with it, I think it does things that you don't normally see in the, the early 90s psycho thrillers of the time. And whereas Single White Female and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle don't have a lot of repeat watching value, I think they're pretty disposable as mm. popcorn uh, thriller experiences. I think this one stays with you and it stays with you because it, it talks about obsession in interesting ways because it does have a vulnerable masculine figure and a very empowered female figure in it. And I think all of the, the, the lead characters are, are great in it. And I, I think it deserves to, to get a little bit more respect than it, than it does. So I, I would vote hmm. to set it free on the proviso that you watch the original as well. <laughs> I think that's yeah. that's what yeah. we have to, yes. what we have to say as a compromise. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's well said. That's well said. And as I said before, it'd be interesting. I I'll never know, but if I would have seen this one first, how mm. I would feel differently. I know I would feel differently. I was just so impacted by the original. I could not get around it. Yes. I just I couldn't step aside and embrace this movie for what it is. But it does have those qualities about it. There's there's great qualities about it, but I cannot get past that. Um, it's like someone saying, uh, "We know you we you love your child, but will you love this child now?" <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> she looks similar, but is that okay? Can you do that? No. <laughs> For you, it was Rita at the door in the wig, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the 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 remake definitely benefits because it was the same director. Though I think because mm. he retains so much of the, his original material, it does transfer across. Whereas if if it had been directed by an American director, I can't even imagine mm, that's what a good point. abomination it would have been. That's mm. true. That's true. Yeah. So, All right. I think. 
Two to one, I think. I'm afraid, Travis, we're letting it go. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. As long as I have the right to voice my opinion, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. You guys can release it from the box. I get it. Uh, so, <laughs> Okay, The Vanishing. Here you go. <laughs> and it got released... Just like Kiefer did wrongfully in the end of its own movie. So, I, you know what? I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. <laughs> okay. So, thanks to our guest, Travis. It's been wonderful having you here and not holding the Pandorum judgment against us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I respect you guys even more because of it. So I know you'll be honest all the time. So uh, no, I appreciate it. And it's wonderful to be here. Uh, this was a blast. I'll, I'll get back in my box, but uh, anytime <laughs> you guys want to pull me out to, to participate in another uh, film, uh, that would be wonderful. So I appreciate mm, it. It has been an absolute pleasure as well um and where can our listeners follow your exploit um you know at the moment uh we have our infinity chamber facebook page which is tracking our film um and we're now preparing to do another film uh for next year i mean i i, I guess we should really mention that you, yeah you have just released a film that is currently uh, streaming on Netflix yeah. called Infinity Chamber. Yeah, no, I, I oh, I appreciate that. So yeah, the film's a, it's a very small indie sci-fi movie, and it's 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 got a great following so far. I cu- I couldn't be more pleased. Well, we we both watched it and really enjoyed it. So definitely a recommendation from us. Ah, well, thank you. Well, our Pandorum episode was very popular on the Facebook group, which was Pandorum fans campaigning for a sequel so yes so i guess i should ask mm. you what's the prospects for a pandorum sequel yeah well you know obviously the film didn't do as well as they'd hoped so that makes it really hard um i've talked to the producers about possible sequels and prequels we we've discussed it i'm not sure how realistic it is but we are talking about possibly pitching a series um so i've i've written out ideas and concepts of how to do a series whether this be for cable or for the web series or whatever um so that is a that is a possibility Mm. Uh, it's been tremendous with the fan base with that movie Mm. it's uh, it was an interesting experience because sci-fi fans are very hardcore i've always said it's kind of like befriending a motorcycle gang (laughs) they will not like you right away no matter what and they did that to us with pandorum but as time went by they slowly then accept you into the group and then they defend you uh the the one funny thing was when pandorum came out a bunch of fans said ah it's just a rip off of this it's a rip off of that and i was like oh, okay and then about a year later another film came out and then the same people were saying ah it's just a rip off of pandorum you guys are just ripping off pandorum <laughs> So I guess that's the cycle. That's the initiation, the, the process of, of 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 garnering sci-fi fans. So it's, it's been a really great experience with that movie. Well, I'm sure they'll be thrilled to hear that the dream is still alive for a continuation of that story in some form or another. Yeah. Mm, yeah. 
So, uh, I think we've got something special planned for next episode, Conrad. We have, yes. It will be our Halloween episode. So, we will be looking at one of the Halloween movies. And it will be... Halloween H2O. Ah, the water-themed Halloween movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's on a boat. (laughs) I've never actually seen it. I've only seen the first two Halloween movies. So, Uh, interesting. The only thing I know about it, uh, a little bit of a spoiler, it's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it, and uh, (laughs) he dies. (laughs) He doesn't last very long, bless him. Yeah. Yeah, it's directed by Steve Miner, who is an alumnus from the Friday the 13th movies, Mm. and it stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis's mum, Janet Lee from Psycho, um, Michelle Williams... And Josh Hartnett and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and LL Cool J. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like a 90s parody movie almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It really does. Yeah, it's it's an, a 90s attempt to reboot the franchise 20 years later. And uh, I thought it, it ties in well given that they're trying to reboot the franchise 40 years later this year. So. Mm. Yes. So looking forward to that. Me too. So as always, if you would like to follow us, we are available on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as Movie Oubliette. If you're not sure how to spell Oubliette, it is... O-U-B-L-I-E-T-T-E Sorry, I think I just passed out for 37 minutes. Uh, what was that? O-U-B-L-I-E-T-T-E And as always, give us a rating and review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you are using. Always helps us out. And we love it. Always. (laughs) So thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you be yet. I strongly urge you to move your face back to where it was.